Hello, and welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, I speak with documentary filmmaker Graham Colbeans and producer Anne Ishii. Together, they collaborated on the new documentary film, Queer Japan, which, as the title may suggest, focuses on LGBTQ and queer culture in Japan. That's coming up on Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Dan McKee. Well, hi there. Happy Monday. And welcome to another episode of Endeavors. On today's show, I'll be talking a lot about queer art and culture and activism, specifically in Japan. There is a new documentary out called Queer Japan, directed by the Canadian Graham Colbeans and produced by the American Anne Ishii. Graham is a documentary filmmaker who's done a lot of work in uh, queer art and activism, including the web series Rad Queers and the short film The House of Gay Art. He is the co-founder and creative director of the brand Massive Goods, which is a fashion brand and manga publisher that predominantly works with LGBTQ and feminist comic artists in Japan, and particularly gay manga. With his collaborator, Anne Ishii, they are the co-editor of two books on Japanese gay art, The Passion of Gengoroa Tagame, about the self, the gay manga artist Gengoroa Tagame, and the Fantagraphics Anthology, Massive, Gay Erotic Manga and the Men Who Make It, which was nominated for an Eisner Award in 2015. The two of them also collaborated on the Koyama Press English language edition of What is Obscenity, a graphic memoir by the artist Rokude Nashiko, chronicling her arrest on obscenity charges for making 3D printed clitoral art. And that book was nominated for a Los Angeles Times Book Award. Graham has also worked with the Japan-U.S. Friendship Commission, and he was named a recipient of that of their Creative Artists Exchange Fellowship in 2016, which is how Queer Japan came to be. And he spent five months in Japan filming uh, that documentary. Uh, some of the subjects featured in the film include the aforementioned Gengoro Tame, drag queen and artist Vivian Sato, transgender politician Aya Kamikawa, and photographer Leslie Key. Other people in the film include artist Akira the Hustler, Tetsuro Onigasuka, who's a professor at Kyoto Senko University, Margaret, which is an organizer of Department H, Masaki Matsumoto, a queer SL YouTuber, Hiroshi Hakagawa, HIV activist and co-founder of G-Men, transgender rights activist Tomato, Hatakeno, and multimedia artist Noji Nogi Sumiko. His collaborator on the film is Anne Ishii, who herself is a writer, editor, translator, and producer based in New York City. In addition to the aforementioned The Passion of Gingoro Tagami, she is the translator of the English version of Tagami's manga, My Brother's Husband. Uh, other translation credits include the Aranzi Machine Gun series, the cute book, the bad book, Gunji, and Bat Manga, the secret history of Batman in Japan. Formerly with Vertical, she is currently the editor-in-chief of They're All So Beautiful and Paper Houses. Her writing has been published in The Village Voigt, Slate, Publishers Weekly, Guernica, Giant Robot, and Asian American Writers Workshop. This is my conversation with 
director Graham Colbeans and producer Ann Ishii on the film Queer Japan. Cool. Well, Ooh. Graham, Anne, hello. Thank you for being here on this Sunday. Thanks for having us, Dan. Yes. Thank you. Uh, you are partners in a great film called Queer Japan. Um, I, had a, I had a chance to, to see the documentary. And Graham, I know for you, this project began when you were... Uh, was it the, 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 the some Japanese American organization? Um, oh, so I think you're, you're talking about Giant Robot, um, which is the company that um, Anne and I met through. Um, doing, I was working at their uh, Comic Con booth and doing some other work with them in the late 2000s um, when I got to know Anne. That's right. Yeah. It's funny to think of Giant Robot as a Japanese-American organization, though. <laughs> yeah, it's very much like it, it was this really important magazine um, for a long time depicting all kinds of um, Asian and Asian-American culture. Um, Eric Nakamura, the founder of Giant Robot, still runs a few stores where they sell artwork and toys and stuff um but unfortunately the magazine's no longer public. but uh is it true graham that i that this specific documentary came about because you were uh a recipient in a fellow oh the friendship the the japan u.s friendship council okay yeah sorry i was getting um my wires crossed <laughs> um, yeah the film um, was made possible through a grant from the Japan U.S. Friendship Commission, and um, they they do a annual grant to five artists um, in this program called the Creative Artists Exchange Fellowship, and um, so Queer Japan was selected as one of the projects for um, 2016, and that allowed us to go and shoot for five months in Japan. Um, which wouldn't have been possible on just like a regular tourist visa because the JUSFC provides um, these longer term uh, cultural visas. You, uh, you, you mentioned Comic-Con and I know that the two of you uh, edited something called uh, The Passion of Gengaro Tagame, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, um, as well as Massive Gay Erotic Manga and, 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 the, fan, or, and the Men Who Make It. How how does one get in, or for at least for you two, how how do you get into manga in in the first place? Where did that interest stem from? I'll take a first stab at this. I feel like um, I think it's funny because that's a that's actually the right question, but it's also sort of in the comic con world. If you ask somebody like, "How did you get into comics?" It's kind of a hard question to answer, right? Like. I don't know, they were just sort of around or, you know, especially manga, if you grew up in the culture, that's something I know as a Japanese person, like you get exposed to it at a really early age. So it's just sort of something that's around. But with gay manga, and I think for me specifically, I was never like a manga head or a comics nerd per se until really at, right at the end of college. And um my interest in gay manga actually came from gay men who were consuming it for its primary purpose, which is to titillate them. <laughs> and I was usually called upon to sort of help find more or to like help translate the stories. So that was my introduction to it. Graham? <laughs> <laughs> for me, I feel like it was, like Anne said, it was just kind of around like, um, especially before I even started reading manga, I was watching anime, um, starting with Sailor Moon um, and continuing on with classic series like Neon, uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. And like, I remember watching Akira <laughs> at age 10 or 11 and being obsessed with it. And then it wasn't until junior high school that I started reading manga. Um, mm -hmm. I remember distinctly like, being in band class and one of my uh one of my classmates had an 
a, an issue of Ranma One Half, which is this amazing gender fluid um, manga with the main character who switches from male to female. Um, and I was just like, wow, this is amazing. I want to read more manga. <laughs> so that was <laughs> initial introduction to it. And I got into some more mainstream stuff. And then when I was a later teenager, I started um, seeing the the manga of artists like Gengaro Tagame and Jiraiya and the art, other artists um, contributing to G-Man magazine, which is uh, this legendary gay um, publication in Japan that ran from 95, 94, 95 to um, just a couple of years ago. So. Mm -hmm. That was when like my interest in gay manga really exploded when I started seeing um, th that kind of artwork online. And um, I remember when we were at Comic-Con with Giant Robot, I was like in the San Diego Convention Center trying to find any booths that might've had those kinds of works. Like I w went around to a few other um, tables like prism comics that distributes gay comics in north america and asked them and and no one really like knew where i might be able to find issues of g-men or that kind of stuff and that's what really inspired um ann and i to start doing these interviews with the artists and and putting them together as a collection you know one one person that that you uh interview in the film that i think uh, is a is a type of person that that's characterized often in in gay manga is uh, the hentai and and and, and senpai. Um, could could you elaborate on on what those terms mean and, and how you think them being portrayed in, in an art form like manga maybe helps bridge the gap between uh, societal like qu queer society and, and and queer literature. Yeah, so the word hentai is often sort of um, misinterpreted or narrowly interpreted, especially outside of Japan, as um, a type of erotica, a type of like strange artwork, like porn. Um, but it actually has a much more expansive definition as a word that um, a couple of people touch on in queer Japan, Ooh. including Atsushi Matsuda, who is a buto dancer. And he's someone who sort of like identifies with that term hentai, or at least finds some use in it um, as an umbrella term of sort of um, non-normative sexuality. Yeah, I think just like, I understand why it makes sense to um, kind of create these neologisms out of the Japanese terms because the culture is so distinct from the way we understand their counterparts in English. But if, you know, hentai etymologically is tied to also transformation or just like um, it's perversion, but in the sense of like resistance and then a word like senpai too is you know senpai kohai is just like junior senior but the, because those dynamics in japanese culture are so different i mean i i get that they need to be sort of maintained in their sort of japanese format but there are corollaries um it's just um it's it's funny because this is the work i feel like i'm always mired in as a translator is like when when does it feel appropriate to translate it and when is it important to like give you know keep it narrowly defined as Graham Graham says you 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 talk about culture and i think at least here in the west there's this idea of japan as a that as a very sort of strict and rigid work and 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 societal culture it's you know it's it's very regimented how how does the 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 queer subculture that 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 we see in the film how does that fit in or 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 not fit in with with sort of the, the traditional norms that we see in japan yeah so um a, a couple of people that we talked to made an analogy to um don't ask don't tell in the united states this term meaning that there's a certain amount of like 
permission, but also please don't bring this subject up um, in, in certain environments in Japanese society, which can be like the workplace, um, in family environments, it's harder to talk about these kinds of things. But at the same time, there are a few um, LGBT celebrities in the national spotlight. Uh, Matsuko Deluxe, who is this, um, who's in a lot of advertising and daily talk shows. Um, so it's not something that is like completely unheard of, but it's also not actively promoted in the mainstream culture. Yeah, I also would say like the, I think the stereotype of the Japanese culture is being traditional, but you correctly pointed out that it's a, a social culture and a work culture. It's not a values-based culture. So Jap Japanese culture can be very regimented, but it isn't by any means more conservative than got the US, right? Which is so conservative. So I think the things that happen in the bedroom are all sort of allowed and just assumed and you know but in that sense it's a very free culture but in the external sort of presentation of like the work day being extraordinarily long or how everybody's really quiet about their private lives that those are aspects that i think you know i think as you know like you said westerners might just find sort of confusing, right? Like a person who usually lives out loud lives out loud 100% of the time. But maybe in Japan, it just, you know, does get compartmentalized a different way. One of the things that I that I do notice, especially with, with some of the queens that you talk to, is their extraordinary sense of, of fashion. And I feel like, mm. you know, fashion plays a big part of, of a lot of LGBTQ uh, cultures, but specifically in Japan, and it strikes me that that Tokyo is one of the the fashion capitals of of, of Asia. How how do you think the 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 fashion scene at large in, in in Tokyo is perhaps bridging a gap to more acceptance of of the queer uh, subcultures that we see? Yeah, um, the thing that comes to mind immediately when you say fashion in terms of queer Japan is this amazing monthly underground hentai party called Department H um, that we had the privilege of filming. And the um, sort of the drag queen mama of Department H is um, Margaret and she's the host and the MC and she always has an amazing ensemble on. And then the, the party itself has a lot of different aspects, a lot of different things going on, but in the center of it, there's a runway and um, people walk the runway with their own sort of like kink looks, their fantastical um, rubber and latex looks. A lot of it's homemade, a lot of, a lot of it is custom. And um, so that was like an amazing, sort of subterranean fashion scene to get to examine up close. Um, I don't know that it necessarily like has a direct impact on high fashion in Japan, but I think those are, um, you can see a lot of creativity and um, uniqueness in that, in that scene and throughout queer culture. Yeah, I would add that does dovetailing off of that social culture you, you referred to, which feels very strict from the outside, that um, I think that bridge that the fashion provides is also just a, a not maybe not limited to the queer community, but how Japanese fashion and culture like in the US and in Canada is very homogeneous now, right? Like everybody goes to Uniqlo Emoji and gets the same like drab clothing so just to be able to resist that I, I mean I I think we could have a whole other conversation about how fashion is resisting this like homogenization of you know clothing culture generally but um it's it's nice because I think people are sort of empowered to make their insides match their outsides you know well, I, I wanted to pick up on that because I think again in the West there's this perception that Japan is a very homogenous country in in terms of the i guess the, it, it it's people and 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 its sort of lifestyle how how much have have you seen that changing over the course of 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 when you shot this documentary 
You know, I, I just want to jump in real quick on that because I think what a movie like Queer Japan does, I hope, is to show that Japan isn't so homogenous, right? Like, but I think the thing I would keep emphasizing is that this is all an interpretation that it is homogenous. And yeah, there are aspects of the culture that appear homogenous because, you know, like, um, salary man clothing culture but then i would challenge you to find any sort of subculture of the u.s that doesn't look really homogenous too right like if you go to wall street everybody's wearing the same light blue button down with khakis so you know i think in that sense these cultures have always been there it's just who how we've paid attention to it that's changed um on the other hand I mean, to address the very real part of the culture, which is like, um, you know, the the sort of the virtues that I think a lot of older generations of Japanese people here too are like, don't stand out or like the tallest reed gets cut first. Like those are the kinds of, you know, uh, cliches that get repeated. And um, and I think that that that's actually something that's important to be thinking about too, if like, but, you know, that there's this sort of negative value placed on sort of showing up or standing out. And that that's what's changing, right? That maybe we're taking some of that negativity away from standing up or being a little bit more visible. And I also think it's worth pointing out that um, American culture is so deeply obsessed with individualism in a way that's been like exported around the world. I mean, you talk about the West and yes, like Western culture does share a lot of similar values. And a lot of that comes out of this like fetishization of the individual in America. Um, and the idea that like, if you just um, express yourself through your lifestyle choices to the fullest, then you can like self-actualize and, um, and really uh, fulfill that promise of finding the pursuit of happiness. But, um, you know, I think it is to a degree um, a, an illusion. It is something that papers over inequities in society. Um, and that, yeah, that same emphasis on individualism isn't as, um, isn't as prominent in the like values of Japanese culture at large, I would say, but perhaps it has been becoming um, more acceptable over the past few decades. And seeing a place like Harajuku, which is one of the fashion capitals of Tokyo and um, has famously been exported around the world through publications like Fruits, um, it is a sort of like beautiful testament to individualism when you walk through there and it isn't necessarily like a queer neighborhood but i think there is a lot of overlap and um queer people find a way to express themselves through fashion that comes out of places like harajuku when i was watching the the documentary it, it struck me that in a way um the sort of the, the queer culture in japan is a lot like berlin you know it's mm. It's it's very fashion based, but a lot of it is still, I think, underground in a lot of ways. If you you know you really want to find the parties, why do you? Th I mean, and obviously there's there's Shinjuku, I think it's called the sort of the the, the one neighborhood in, in in Tokyo there. But why do you think? Okay. Yeah, uh, Shinjuku is like a huge. Okay. It's almost like a city within Tokyo, and then mm -hmm. it's like a neighborhood that has mostly queer bars. Uh, but. Why do you think it is, you know, for uh, I guess a lot of these different cultures that they they still sort of they, they have to almost drive themselves out of the mainstream to succeed and, and and do you do you find that the the queer subculture in Japan is is slowly starting to become more accepted within the mainstream uh, over there? I I would go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say that I think like a lot of people who take pride in their sort of uniqueness or, you know, like Vivian talks about being the noise, but um, I, I just, I'm not sure if anybody who 
relishes in that subculture wants to see it in the mainstream, right? Like, I think everybody would prefer that it remain, quote, underground. Um, I, I think, I, I'm trying to think. Yeah. Graham, you sorry, that was just a thought I had. No, I think that's spot on. I think there are like a handful of people who cross over into mainstream culture and there might be like differing attitudes about that, a little bit of pride, a little bit of like, well, they've they've gone over to that team now and <laughs> they're no longer with us, but there mm -hmm. is like such a rich culture already happening in the hundreds of bars that are in that one neighborhood, Shinjuku Nichome, and in similar neighborhoods like it throughout cities across Japan and smaller towns even, um, that it's kind of like, it's, yeah, there's not really so much of a need for um, this, this culture to be represented on TV, but I do think that like, in the national media, there has started to be more attention to LGBT culture, especially over the last decade. Um, one of our interview subjects, uh, Nogi Sumiko, she, she was telling us about how in the early 2000s, when Tokyo had its first iteration of the Pride Parade, um, there was a, a journalist on like national TV who went to cover the parade and was just, and, and his comments were like, look at these freaks, look how weird they are, you know, that level of discourse. And now there is more actual substantive and less homophobic conversation around events like that. And I've, I even saw on TV when I was um, shooting, there was a news program that went down to Shinjuku Nichome and they visited a couple of the well-known bars and it was kind of like, let's take a look at this culture. but you know from from an outsider perspective um but still like a lot more interest in um the the cultures of lgbt people starting to show on the mainstream level so that that's encouraging there 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 was an interesting shift that happened i noticed gradually in the film when when it goes from merely profiles of your interview subjects to to the more greater i guess political aspects of mm. of of queer society in Japan. What kind of conversations did, did the two of you have about, I guess, the, the, the tone of the film and, and making that shift from not making it just about the people, but to about the, 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 the bigger, the bigger uh, culture as a whole? Mm. Yeah, I think um, one of the tone, tonal like distinctions we wanted this film to make was that it was something joyful and celebratory um, that wasn't stigmatizing or unnecessarily problematizing the lives of the people that it was depicting, but rather we decided to have um, as natural conversations as you can have in an interview format, but to allow people to bring up the issues that mattered to them and then to follow those threads um, rather than taking like an objective political look at everything on the political landscape. Yeah, and I think I just want to commend Graham on doing such a great job of um, introducing that tone of sort of, uh, you know, victory and joy that isn't depending on some sensationalized tragedy. And like, I, I commend it because I know my instinct was like, where's the conflict? Like, what's the story we can exploit? And how do we make this Tiger King? And, you know, but that's just like my American sensibility. Whereas what's so much, much more important, I think for queer viewers and the community is to know that the victories can actually be really quiet or just like policy is huge, right? Like change in policy would be a huge victory. Just not like sensational, um, being recognized by your city and your state um, as a, a complete human. I mean, that's a really big deal but it's really hard to convey that. So I, I am glad you noticed the shift in tone. And I really think that's a testament to Graham's ability to sort of honor the community. You know, just while we're on this uh, political aspect, you, you do include um, archival footage of a television interview with uh, the councilwoman, I think she's councilwoman, uh, Miyu Sugita, 
who has said a lot of problematic things, not only mm-hmm. about the queer community, but about uh, the the married people having to have the same last name and, and, and educational policies. Mm-hmm. Why was it Im- important for you to include that type of dialogue and that type of character within this film? Um, I think it was important to illuminate what the most sort of like outwardly spoken aspects of homophobia look like in um, Japanese politics. And although Mio Sugita is kind of a fringe figure in politics, she is also part of the party that has been ruling Japanese politics for most of the last two decades and and beyond. But um, the LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party, has maintained a very firmly conservative stance against um, expanding LGBT rights. Uh, Shinzo Abe, who recently stepped down after many years of running the country, um, just basically would only comment that the Japanese constitution does not allow for same-sex marriage without um, expressing any personal opinions on the matter. But, you know, you see this far right person in his party um, saying what a lot of people are not going to say, which is that, um, you know, these homosexual people are unproductive and talking about it in sort of a eugenics way in right. terms of like, we shouldn't support these people because they're not contributing to the next generation or whatever her weird twisted uh, mm. motivation for those comments are. And, and we also just want to add that um, we tried to balance out that sort of a harsh perspective with a really encouraging story in Japanese politics, which is um, Setagaya Councilwoman Ayakamikawa, who's uh, the first openly transgender elected official in Japan. And she's been in politics for two decades now, um, really making important changes to policy, um, pushing for trans rights and LGBT rights. So um, yeah, we wanted to show both ends of the spectrum. I'll, just a quick add too that I think at the level of policy making um, for conservative politicians, I think the message that makes the most sense to a lot of Japanese people won't be one that comes from like a Judeo-Christian, like sodomy is bad type of messaging, but more like who do you want to be a citizen, right? Like so, it's a lot about who gets to own the privilege of being Japanese and. And I find that really problematic too. So, you know, it's interesting just thinking about how that that gets manipulated in terms of the like family register that you alluded to. Um, that's like definitely like a that that comes from systemic racism, right? Do you do you do you see any parallels at all with the 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 law surrounding the family register? And the reluctance of the LGBT or the reluctance of the LDP to recognize LGBT couples, since they they might be less likely to to change their last name when they get married. So the Kosaki, just for um, listeners who aren't familiar with this structure, it's this um, it's basically a family registry that has been in an important part of Japanese bureaucracy for over a century um, that. It basically um, it denotes the family lineage of everyone in, who is a Japanese citizen, and it has all these strangely rigid uh, structures. It's very difficult to, um, for instance, if you even a heterosexual couple couple getting married, one of them is forced to choose the other's last name based on the way that the Koseki is set up. Um, and so that has been a fight for some people trying to change that. And of course the LGBT community wants uh, same-sex marriages or same-sex couples to be able to um, have the same rights as other people who have their marriages uh, documented in the Koseki. 
Um, so it's a complicated system that uh, conservative politicians are reluctant to change, um, but it's standing in the way of a lot of progress in society, unfortunately. One thing that we that we do see uh, at the end is you, you film some some pride festivals in Japan. I think one is in uh, in in Okinawa there, uh, and and we see you know we see some people celebrating pride. We see some who aren't. We we see some who are ambivalent. And the ambivalent part strikes me as interesting because it it almost feels like in a way being apolitical about you know, pride or, or certain things has, has become, in a way, the last and most political act one can do. What, 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 do, you, what do you feel mm. about people who, who are sort of are, are on the more ambivalent side of things? Well, yeah, we try to provide a variety of perspectives, um, especially in the Tokyo Rainbow Pride segment. Um, we interviewed the organizers as well as activists who were protesting the organizers um, and people who are just enjoying themselves and expressing themselves on that day. So there is a variety of approaches to pride, um, not only in Japan, but around the world. I think we're seeing similar um, sort of in in group uh, struggles in terms of like how do we celebrate pride and make it an event that includes everybody without um, making it all about corporate sponsorships with problematic companies and so we tried to include that whole conversation in the pride uh, in the depiction of pride yeah I think the the point you're making is interesting though to suggest that the sort of ambivalence alludes to kind of opting out of the politics of queer identity. And I think to point that might be true, but it's also like um, pride as a framework is so weird. Like Graham said, it is so complex. Like I would never want to prevent somebody from enjoying pride or like just, you know, um, what's the word? Like even, even if it is a self-interested self-promotion or you know, like a commercial endorsement up to a point, I see the purpose of it, right? Like we still need money, people still need visibility. But um, as, as for the politics of it, I think um, what's so what's so interesting about it is that like, I think maybe what you're suggesting and what I agree with is a lot of people just want to exist, right? Like, and for it not to be like a story, like, I might just be gay and also be an incredibly boring person, right? Like that's allowed too. So I think that's maybe the more interesting story as we get to like understanding that the culture might be just like as diverse as a whatever other culture where you don't know 85% of the people because they just aren't that interesting. I, I know, you know, here here in North uh, in in Canada, and I'm sure in the U.S., Pride has received a lot of criticism for the last decade, becoming very very corporate. You know, you see organizations like banks or you know yeah. uh, multinationals coming out and having a float. And to me, it always struck me as, are were they actually genuine, or or are they just trying to? Is it just a good PR move uh, for them? In, in your own observations or, or with some of the activists that you talked with, what, what, do you, what sense do you get a, of the corporatization of, of the modern pride movement? Yeah, it's, it's a, a tricky one because I've talked to people who have said how important it is to them that like Google is here. But at the same time, um, Google has prevented their employees from speaking out at the prides they've participated in. Um, last year, they had a policy that employees um, could not bring their own signs or t-shirts, had to wear the company uniform and just be there to like promote Google. But pride started as a protest and silencing LGBT people in your company is kind of going against the very spirit of that. So it's tricky. I think um, it's nice to see support from companies, but 
if they're not putting their money where their mouth is, if they are allowing homophobic people on YouTube and censoring LGBT voices, then, you know, for instance, you have to take account of that and say, do you really want this person, this organization, um, corporation sponsoring a, an event that's supposed to celebrate community that they may be actually contributing to the oppression of? Yeah, and I would guess that just in my understanding of where the activists are in this and in the in the cast and just generally, I'm sure it's not lost on anybody every time there's an interaction with a corporate stakeholder that it's problematic, right? I think that, mm. I, I mean, one thing I might generalize Japanese people as being incredibly good at is understanding consumerism. <laughs> so, you know, that's a, that's something they totally know. The, the, the idea of selling out is totally, I mean, that is a big deal, but, but I, yeah, I don't know where that negotiation starts and stops uh, when it comes to like consistent values. But I mean, of course, Graham's absolutely right that uh, the companies do need to put their money where their mouth is. So Masaki Matsumoto, who we interviewed at Tokyo Rainbow Pride, um, they were saying that, you know, of course, an event like this costs a lot of money to put on. So I don't say no sponsors, no sponsors. You just have to be accountable. So I think that's a reasonable request. At, at least here in Canada, you know, in Vancouver and Toronto, I think Pride has been criticized a lot for being very still overwhelmingly uh, cis, white, gay male. Um, and it, it goes back to, to what we what we talked about earlier with, with sort of the, the, homo, the homo, homogenous uh, society in Japan. But what, is that part of the problem with, with then using the term LGBT versus queer? Because... It, it, in a way, it, it feels like certain aspects of pride are are marginalizing themselves and and, and acting as, as as gatekeepers in a way. Um, yeah, I well, that kind of felt like two questions. I'm going to address the first <laughs> one. Um, just it brings to mind something that um, Nogi Sumiko said in an interview. Um, she's an artist. She is a butch lesbian, kind of um, is okay with ambiguity in her gender. And she went to Pride back at the beginning um, in the early aughts when it was in its uh, earliest form. And she said that people, she was heckled by gay men there and they were calling her an ugly lesbian and telling her to leave. So she, she did not attend Pride for years after that. And I find that to be like a really sad and an indicative story of exactly what you're talking about, gay, cis, male um, privilege and uh, centering in these types of events. Um, and I think it's gotten better. Now there is definitely a more diverse um, in, an inclusive atmosphere at um, Tokyo Rainbow Pride. Um, but at the end of the day, there is still this um, this type of like gay cis male emphasis that is, uh, I think it's a problem in, in any LGBT community, uh, not to like overly generalize, but yeah, we should be putting trans folk first and people who um, don't have the most privilege in the whole queer culture. Oh, I don't have anything to add except that um, I think maybe what Graham's starting to say, or, you know, in regards to the sort of alphabet soup of the words we use to talk about ourselves, it's it's just going to be hard. And I don't know that there is any, I, I don't know that there is any, anything much more complicated than just that it's complicated, right? Like, I don't think I've, felt like there's been a, a, a strategy like it's not you know um the queer community doesn't agree with lgbt community or that they're different or intertwined or mutually exclusive or you know um but but it is complicated for sure I, that would be 
yeah, it's or complex, maybe not complicated, just complex. Well, yeah, language is so fluid, and these terms are frequently changing, and and they have different backgrounds and associations in different places. Um, it was interesting to listen to Hiroshi Hasegawa, who's been um, a part of the queer scene for decades, um, and he was talking about how when he joined. Um, it, everyone was saying, calling themselves homo. And now that's discrimination. <laughs> you know, you don't go around saying like, he's a homo. Um, but at the time, the word gay was out of fashion and felt more discriminatory. So now those things have changed and it, it's gonna change. It's changing. <laughs> well, what I found really interesting is that in, in the film, a number of those subjects actually sort of break down the acronym and talking about LGBT and how T doesn't necessarily fit because it's an identity as opposed to to a sexuality. Um, why why was it important for for you to to break it down at at such a fundamental level when we're when we're talking about identity, especially since not everyone in the queer community wants an identity attached to them. Well, um, just the importance of breaking it down on its own. I think um, in 2016 when we were shooting most of the film there was a survey showing that 50% of Japanese society had no idea what LGBT meant and 25% of the LGBT community didn't know what it me meant either. And I think those numbers are probably smaller in North America, but there are definitely plenty of straight people who don't know what LGBT means. And so we wanted to talk about that. And I think it came up during, um, an interview with a dancer at a transmasculine party called Grammy Tokyo. He was talking about how he does see the separation um, between trans folk and lesbian, gay, and bisexual folk, but he wants to see the community get along better and move as a whole and, and not care as much about those distinctions. You, you, one thing um, that you, you, or a person you talked about earlier was uh, Nogi Sumiko, and I actually, I really, I think I enjoyed her interview the best because she, she talks about all the ambiguous bits, you know, and and sort of what you don't see on the surface, whether it's with sexuality or identity. And I was getting maybe a, a bit of you know, ace demi vibes uh, f f from her. Um, why? I guess, I guess in, in any part of our lives, why is there a need for a certain amount of ambiguity? Hmm, that's a big question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anne? <laughs> I think it, ambiguity, I, I mean, I'm going to call upon Tagame for this, who, by all appearances, when you look at his work, you think, okay, this is definitely a guy who's really into dudes. Like... It's so, it's so much dick. It's so much ass. It's so, it's so masculine and it's so hardcore. But I remember talking to his ex-publisher who was saying that um, actually a lot of his audience is um, woman. And I, I'm just bringing that up because if if we now go into the ambiguity begins with just like, do can, could I even say in five words what? It, what I desire like I couldn't right like I don't think an, any of us could um here's Ooh. a person whose outputs are all have a really clear signature his work has a very clear signature but he has one of the most diverse audiences and I think that's like a real testament to that question what how important is the ambiguity like I why am I titillated by you know, that scene when I don't practice it myself, for example. Um, so that that's my answer, but it, that's a really hard one. I don't know. <laughs> I also think there's an importance to um, ambiguity and clarity. Um, mm. And that's kind of the distinction between words like queer and hentai um, and something like LGBTQIA+. Um, th those are very specific labels that are all included in that acronym, and they're really important labels for a lot of people. They give themselves meaning and understanding and help them communicate themselves to others, but at the same time, 
there is a lot you can't just like communicate with a label. So I love Nogi Sumiko's embrace of the ambiguous. And I think that's a running theme throughout the film. Um, Vivian Sato also um, mentioned that she doesn't like to have herself boiled down to one category. Yes, she is a drag queen, but she's also somebody who displays her drag at most times when she's out and about in the world, when she's going to the bank and the grocery store, that's how she likes to present. So is she transgender? Is that something else? It's definitely performative, but she doesn't really need uh, an identity marker to explain herself. She just says, I am Vivian Sato. And mm-hmm. that's all she wants to know. And she also, you know, encourages people to uh, adopt a new identity, try something out. Um, it changes and it's it's good to embrace that change. You know, on on this note of the ambiguous, the, the film does touch on um, a lot of the, the historical aspects of, of queer culture in Japan, whether it's through art, uh, through fashion, a, a lot of the geishas I know you uh, in olden times uh, were, were 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 men. Uh, how 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 was that in, in important in tying the whole story together for you? Um, I feel like I did a lot of research um, before making the film about what it was about Edo period and Meiji period expressions of queer sexuality. And I find it really fascinating. There's a lot that I never knew about and that hasn't been part of the mainstream conversation of like queer history so much um, because unfortunately it has often focused on North American queer history. Um, A lot of depictions of the sort of struggle that LGBT people have been through in the world start in like 1950s America, which is a very limited scope. And I think it was important for us to expand the conversation in this film without making it too much about history. We wanted to set it in the contemporary moment, but of course, history informs that. And we saw that through people like Junko Mitsuhashi. She is uh, a trans activist and lecturer. She's a professor of history. And um, she talks about the, the importance of the kimono in historical expressions of trans identity and how she likes to continue that legacy by, by wearing that um, when she teaches, when she presents in a photo shoot. Um, and yeah, so we, we touch on history in the film, but it goes, it's, it's so deep that it kind of deserves its own documentary um, and probably not one directed by a white man. <laughs> I was going to say, I think the most important thing about querying Japanese history is that Japan, like, you know, the U.S. and, uh, you know, Canada to a point, are deeply, you know, heading in a place of fascism, right? Like, really just kind of misplaced um, ideas of, like, past greatness or, you know, just I don't even need to tell you, but, like, the ideas of what our cultures and histories are are incredibly whitewashed and inaccurate. So the more we can present different and alternative histories, you know, in Japanese culture, I know like myself growing up with like a Japanese curriculum, if I were 13 and knew about these histories, it would have blown my mind. Cause I was taught that it was all about like fucking, I don't know, Bushido and like shoguns, you know, like the it's, and that's all fake. It's not real. So I think that's important too. Um, And like, it, it, on top of being fascinating, I think for the if the end viewer is Japanese, it's important that they know that you know history is much more complicated. It and what you just said, Anne, reminds me of when we went to see the Shunga exhibition um, in yeah. a few years ago. It was one of the first contempt like modern um, museum exhibitions of erotic artwork in Japan and it it had only um, come there after first showing at the British Museum, I think, or and it had toured um, sort of the Western world before being accepted in Japanese museums. And it it was all these um, UPOA woodblock prints of 
um, depicting sexuality in this very like joyful and free and playful way that um, isn't really like talked about so much in um, normal or <laughs> mainstream uh, histories of Yukioe in Japan. So mm -hmm. like there are all of these histories that are just starting to be re-embraced um, in contemporary Japanese society. One one thing that we did see at the end of the film was this uh, same-sex ceremony. I believe it was in uh, Okinawa, uh, which I know is one of the districts in Japan that has, I think it's called, what do they call it, a same-sex certificate uh, or, or something like that. What exactly does that mean legally? Yeah, so although um, the Japanese constitution does not allow for same-sex marriage, um, in a, apparently, according to the prime minister, um, the <laughs> People in local uh, jurisdictions, uh, in local politics, have started this partnership certificate program, which is somewhat similar to civil unions. It doesn't give um, the full benefits of marriage, but it does allow the government to um, note when when people have made a union and it's supposed to be respected by local hospitals local businesses um and and like uh rent rent companies and landlords and stuff so it's it's a step towards legal recognition of same-sex couples and it started um due to the efforts of politicians like aya kamikawa um in about 2014 and 15 i think were the first ones in tokyo and now it has spread to more than two dozen um cities and prefectures across japan including okinawa we we heard that uh last year i think it was or maybe a couple of years ago taiwan became the first um nation in asia asia to legalize same-sex marriage and the Middle East strikes me as still very conservative, but but maybe we're we're starting to see waves of equality uh, in, in in the Far East. W overall, what is your what is your take on um, same sex marriage in in Asia? How how close are we? Hmm. It's it's definitely a complicated situation. I think it's a case by case basis on um, each country, but it was definitely encouraging to see Taiwan become the first to nationally legalize same sex marriage. Um, and I think that's something that people in Japanese politics, in the opposition, basically the more left people in politics have been pushing for for a long time. There was actually an effort um, prior to the canceled 2020 Olympics in Tokyo um, to have same-sex marriage legalized so that it wouldn't become an issue the way that it did for the, um, the, the Olympics in Russia in 2014 when um, the lack, the, sort of lack of gay rights in Russia became one of the central narratives of the Olympics there. Um, unfortunately, that didn't really like persuade people to enact change in Japan. But hey, maybe it'll happen before the 2021 Olympics. <laughs> um, I don't want to poo poo something that I think a lot of people in the LGBT community value so much but i wonder when we have this conversation i think often about the the exact opposite um side of the marriage question which is like in parts of scandinavia where fewer and fewer straight couples are getting married and having children without legal marriage because the state protects them as parents co-parents um so why do people want to get married right like what does what kind of protection does that offer you so in terms of the legalization of marriage between same gendered folks in East Asia, like I just keep thinking, why would people need that if they can have protections in other ways to other aspects of their lives together, right? Whereas in the US, it's borderline impossible to raise a child without that legal contract or to share resources. And I just, I don't know, I mean, obviously the marriage contract would protect you in a lot of other ways um 
but I, I, I would love to know more. I, I have to admit, I just don't know what additional security it provides. Because, like, in the U.S., you just kind of need it to raise a kid. But I don't know what the purpose would be if, you know, like Japan is, you know, for better or for worse, there's a lot of editorializing right now around the fact that the population in Japan is decreasing, right? But they're doing a lot. They incentivized having children. So that's an area where that's not, uh, uh, you know, you're not exposed if you have a child. You actually have uh, some fringe benefits. They're problematic, but they're still there. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. I just wonder. It's kind of like... I feel that a lot of times um, same-sex marriage is used as a barometer of progress for countries around the world. And although it is one metric of whether or not LGBT people are being um, treated equally, there are so many other things to look at. And mm -hmm. um, Masaki, I'll who I'll return to, the, pro the activist who is protesting at Pride, um, they're always a contrarian. I love them. And they <laughs> back when Shibuya became the first uh, regional jurisdiction to announce the partnership program, I remember Masaki saying, this is pinkwashing. The mayor who is like collecting credibility from this is at the same time evicting homeless people from Shibuya Park. And, um, you know, homelessness is also an LGBT issue. So... I think it's it's complicated. Um, I hope that we see more marriage equality, but that's not the only um, need expressed by LGBTQ people in Japan and around the world. I, I think it was Masai that said, um, in, in, in terms of LGBT equality, Japan needs a few more rebels uh, to, to fight. Oh, Akira the Hustler, he was saying that... Um, he, he wants to see more loud and obnoxious people in Japanese society standing up for their rights. Do you, but do, do, does that extend farther than Japan just in, in society in general? Uh, you know, obviously in the, in the U.S., uh, the people who are the most loud and obnoxious tend to be heard the most and, 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 and get their way. Um, but do we, need, do we need that on the other side of the coin? Do we need you know, more, more activists who, who, who are loud and obnoxious. Uh, I think if I'm interpreting your question, yeah, I think for sure there's the, well, okay, actually, you know what? I'll just take one step back. Personally, I think there's also, <laughs> this is a whole other podcast too, but like, um, media suppression in Japan is actually a thing. So there's just a lot that's underreported. There's tons of demonstrations, but they are never broadcast. So like that that's a thing, right? So maybe what we don't maybe what we need is yes, yeah, some more obnoxious activists, but I'll, I never thought I would say that. <laughs> but but also maybe some more obnoxious editors and more more obnoxious journalists, right? Um, people willing to share what's happening um or or when it does happen it gets airtime that like it gets transmitted globally more uh because it is happening that's true i feel like the japanese media is pretty constrictive and that's coming from america we have um a pretty shoddy media ecosystem ourselves but mm -hmm. Um, there were policies passed in Shinzo Abe's administration making freedom of the press uh, a much dicier proposition. Yeah, it's and, not guaranteed. Yeah. yeah. So that's a really um, cogent point. And I think that um, if the Japanese media was covering the amount of activism that happens on the left and just throughout Japan, it would be a whole different conversation. And Graham, what can you tell me about about your your latest work, stretching with Graham Colbeans? 
<laughs> yeah, so um, it's just a little vlog that I started on YouTube um, to express myself while um, doing a little bit of self-care. <laughs> so I do these little five or 10 minute episodes where I talk about issues that are making me anxious and I just try to like breathe and stretch it out. Um, I really need to get back to it because it's been a few months since I've made one. And you'd think that quarantine would be a great time for something like that, but the anxiety has just been a little high lately. I haven't been able to channel it into an episode, but um, I hope people check that out. And I have some other short films up on YouTube. You can watch an earlier documentary I did with Anne and Tagame at the House of Gay Arts, um, which is this amazing archive of um, exactly what it sounds like, <laughs> Japanese gay <laughs> art. <laughs> Well, the film is Queer Japan, and it is being released on December 11th, uh, if I am correct. Uh, Graham Colbins and Ishii, thanks so much for your time today. Thank, Thank you. you for me, thanks, Dan. That was my conversation with Graham Colbins and Anne Ishii, the director and producer, respectively, on the great new documentary Queer Japan. It is out. December 11th. That does it for me today. Be sure to subscribe to Endeavors on Apple, Spotify, Google, Deezer, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts, or you can check me out on Mnet Radio Mission, where I air select interviews. You can follow me on social media at Endeavors Radio, or visit us on the web at EndeavorsMedia.com. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. I just like to have a lot of sex. <laughs> <laughs>